The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Dan Bardell. The main focus of today's podcast will be Saturday's Champions League final, but not, unfortunately, what went on on the pitch. The game was delayed by 36 minutes as Liverpool fans were stuck outside the stadium with photos and videos showing police firing pepper spray in the build-up to the game. The game was originally delayed by 15 minutes before the Liverpool players emerged for a second warm-up nearly 10 minutes after the originally scheduled kick-off time. The match was then delayed again before a further six-minute delay until 8.36pm. UEFA claimed that the final was delayed because Liverpool fans arrived at the stadium late, which as we've all seen and heard from numerous accounts was far from the case. Alongside me today is the Athletics' Adam Crafton and Ollie Kay, who was actually at the game. But before I speak to the panel, here are the accounts from two fans James Pearce spoke to. First you're going to hear from Liverpool fan Peter Clarkson who was caught up in the issues outside the ground, followed by Carl Clemente who was with his nine-year-old son. Peter Clarkson, um, been watching Liverpool for 20 years, uh, fifth European Cup final and that was just the worst, it was the most scared I've ever been in my life. Got off the train about half six, finally got in the ground about five to nine, but we got, uh, followed the crowd uh, from the train station, stuck for 20 minutes waiting, no, no explanation, then funneled between two police vans. Uh, just no organisation, no signposting. Saw Mike Gordon, he said it was appalling. Um, pleading with police to help. Finally got through that with about an hour to go before kickoff. Uh, after a mini crush as well. And then the turnstiles were just horrific. Um, locals trying to push in. Um, they were like Disneyland turnstiles as well. Finally got to the turnstile. My genuine ticket turned red. And they just sort of ushered me through. My friend had to crawl underneath them. Um, and to be honest, got in the ground. I just wanted to cry, to be honest. Really, really bad. Um, and just glad it's over. The game was an afterthought. My name's Carl Clemente. Um, been supporting Liverpool, um, going to games around England, Anfield, obviously, and um, Europe for around 20, 22 years now. Last night, I've never seen anything like it. It's going to make me think twice um, going to these events again. Basically, it was the first time I took my son, nine years old. During the day, we went to the UEFA park, the Liverpool fan park, everything was okay. And then we went to the ground um, about five o'clock. I was with my lads, so I thought we'd have to get in there early. After the game, uh, as we were walking towards the Nova Hotel, there was, um, first of all, a uh, a disturbance and the disturbance was wasn't to do with Madrid fans and wasn't to do with Liverpool fans what I saw was groups of um, young lads from Paris they were um, having a go at the police and charging the police there was about two or three groups around 20 or 30 of them and they were the ones who were causing trouble they were um, throwing things at the police and then the police charged and throwing pepper bombs and pepper sprays and obviously we were got caught up in that and then there was another surge of these um, local Paris lads at uh, the police and then the police came at us again um, and they actually threw a, pe- a pepper spray bomb or whatever it was and it actually hit my ankle so I like jumped up and um, fell threw myself to the floor right in front of my lads who was you know as I said, it was like a war zone, so it could, could it be a grenade or anything like so. I just had this vision of it coming to me and it just exploded. And I just like fell over and hit the deck and um, my lad was in tears and then he couldn't breathe and properly. And we had really sore eyes, we couldn't see and he was just really upset. I mean, for a nine-year-old, I mean, I wasn't bothered for me, but for a nine-year-old, he couldn't breathe, he couldn't see, he was crying. Adam, some powerful testimonies there. Yeah, I mean, just kind of just a reflection of everything that we started to hear both, you know, on the radio last night and also just following it on social media from home. Uh, And it was really interesting because you're following the game. I was watching it on BT Sport and there was obviously we knew the match was being delayed and then you start to see things on, on social media as well. And then the official announcement from whether it was UEFA or the stadium authorities said, the match has been delayed due to the late travel of fans. 
and that's where straight away yeah it just it just didn't add up because you were seeing all these different testimonies of supporters that were there you know two hours three hours in some cases more and not just supporters it was journalists it was neutral journalists it was it yeah, was reputable pe- accounts wasn't it because indif- i think it's it's it's, it's, exactly. it's important it was, to say it, at this was, point that there was a lot of like big football troll accounts whatever they're called just spreading misinformation at that time but also there's a lot of reputable journalists a lot of reputable people saying that isn't what's happening at all here absolutely and 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 it just straight away your sort of instincts were this isn't right this is not right and it then goes from being 15 minutes to i think 30 minutes in the end what did the game start at 36 something past, like that yeah. i think was 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 when the game actually started. It's scary because, you know, people, to strip this back, people go to these finals to have the greatest night of their lives, whether their teams win or they lose, whatever, right? They're going with their children, with their dads, with their siblings, friends, and they just want to create nice memories. And unfortunately, they've left today almost grateful that they've not been severely injured or worse. And it's it's an absolutely dismal situation that's been created there by the organisers of that event and there'll be a lot of uh, finger pointing over the next few weeks and months about is that the stadium authorities which would perhaps you know bring in the French Football Federation was it the policing was it the city you know the local authorities in the city is it the French government as well UEFA could British police have done more in, in helping to assist you know all of these questions will be asked and and unfortunately, it's a pattern now. It is a trend over the past year at major, major football events. We saw it at Wembley uh, last year with the Euro 2020 final. The African Cup of Nations, which, you know, not many people were talking about that last night, but people died in Cameroon um, when one of, the, one of the entrances to the stadium at the final had a crush. And, and now you've had events last night. And each of these situations are very, very different. I don't think you can actually compare at all the behaviour of Liverpool fans in Paris to the behaviour of some England fans before the Euro 2020 final. That would be completely wrong. But I feel like, you know, I was recently talking to some of the organisers of the Qatar World Cup. I was saying to them, look, there's been these two events in both Cameroon and and Wembley. Are are you a bit worried about the logistics of organising football fans, potentially football fans who may have drunk a bit, who may be up for a party? at a World Cup and they was, and, and they were said yeah we're looking into it and I do feel like you know we ha- we can't treat these events as sole one-offs they have to be events that the next organizers are looking at and saying what can we learn from this what was done at this event that we need to not do and what wasn't done ev- done at this event that we have to do uh, and it's a major concern well, the worrying thing is those places are you know yeah. Paris London Wembley they're places that are used to holding these big events, yeah. whereas we go to Qatar. The other side of that is you'll probably have, you know, you'll have less, you, you'll kind of have more people there than, than Qatar would normally have because it's the World Cup. But you also won't have, you know, like it was for Wembley last year where you have so many thousands of people coming and there were ticketless fans at Wembley last, you know, at, last year trying to get into that yeah. stadium. So I think it, it's different, it's different challenges in each one. And actually, you know, also speaking to some Rangers fans today who went out to Seville for their final against Frankfurt, and they were also talking about how they felt mistreated by the police. So it's a, it's a real issue that, that's developing. I mean, the relief is that, you know, no one seems to have been really, really seriously injured, but clearly people have suffered injuries from pepper spray and being part of, of major congestion. But, you know, obviously we weren't there. Um, Ollie, Ollie Kay was, and he's with us. Ollie, yeah, you were covering the game for the Athletic, and I think in a lot of ways, the game was almost secondary to a lot of Liverpool fans that were there because of the way they were treated before the match started. From what those testimonies said, was that kind of typical of what what you were seeing in, on your trip? Yeah, I got to the um, Stade de France station six thirty p.m. local time. It's two and a half hours before kickoff. Um, immediately tried to make my way to the stadium, which is sort of. 10 minutes walk away should have been 10 minutes walk away um but it was you know but after after the first sort of 500 meters or, or so we just couldn't move it was just a bottleneck and we were just stood in this very very tight area that's a long time before kickoff as well isn't it so i can imagine it you got progressively it is, worse it is. and 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 there were loads of people already already there there were you know two and a half hours before kickoff is 
you know that's that's fine for a journalist to, mm. to arrive. It's early for it's early if you're if, if you're fans and you try to get into the stadium, um, and there were and there were thousands of fans trying to get into the stadium at that point, and it was just not possible because they, you know they weren't letting people through and they were they were funneling people towards this tiny space between a load of police vans and a wall, which was under the you know it, it was under the um, the underpass uh, going alongside the carriageway, and it was it was. It was a bizarre arrangement to have, you know, it was bizarre and dangerous, dangerous thing because it, it completely, you know, it, it created a, a bottleneck and it, it made it impossible to pass through. And I think, as, as Adam said, there were fans there who, who didn't have tickets. There were fans who were there who were hoping to get tickets, you know. I'm sure there were also fans who were hoping to get, you know, bunk in. I think that also always seems to happen with these big events where it's very limited allegations and you know there's an absolute desperation to get in but we're talking small numbers yeah really small numbers that that's not what caused the thing and there should be a way of stopping those fans getting anywhere near the stadium when when we talk about fans you know, rangers fans last week traveling to seville and frankfurt fans traveling to seville without tickets liverpool fans traveling to to paris without tickets that is that behavior is encouraged they have fan parks in these cities, they, they make a big deal of having fan parks and fans fans go knowing that there's a very, very slim chance that they might stumble on a, you know, stumble on a ticket. That happens and, and fans do travel without tickets. It's it's legitimate. Watching it in a fan park in Paris should have been a great experience. Yeah. But I don't think, he, I mean, I, I imagine, well, from what I'm told, the fan, you know, the fan park was a really good experience until pepper spray was inexplicably um, played, um, f- fired or sprayed at them um, after the final whistle, I think it was. And it, it was just, I, I just found it really disturbing, disheartening, because as Adam mentioned, there were some parallels with the, the England fans at Wembley at the Euros final last summer in that there was issue with, with fans there who didn't have tickets. There was issues there with disorganisation. I was at I was at Wembley last July, and I was there as a as a as a, as a paying fan rather than as a journalist. And the atmosphere outside, I thought, was really it was a real kind of toxic atmosphere. It really, sort of felt like a sort of really an atmosphere that that was that was turning darker by the by the hour, basically. Yeah, like there was people there looking for trouble, wasn't there? But it it didn't look like that in Paris. I've got to say, I. I know there are fans of rival clubs who are who are objecting to this sort of sympathy that's being expressed with Liverpool fans who are in Paris, but I, given what I saw, and this is before it really escalated, but the the way people were being penned in a really con- confined area and not being allowed through and mistreated and sneered at and, and all of this kind of thing, I'm surprised there was there wasn't more tension and agitation at that point. And looking at some of the scenes that I've seen, you know, the, the videos that I've seen and the, the way trans fans were treated, I'm surprised there wasn't, there wasn't a riot. I think, I think Liverpool fans deserve some praise for not reacting worse to, to what I saw as appalling policing, appalling mismanagement. And, and that, that pepper spray issue, I think, was just a complete disgrace. And one other thing I would mention is that the only... The only real trouble and agitation I saw outside the stadium before I finally got in was with locals. It was it was two, two little flare ups. One one of which was a, a you know a local trying to try, trying to pickpocket another local, and and the other was um, and, and getting um, and getting uh, a kicking for it, and and the other was you know two locals scrapping in the in the street. The Liverpool fans, the Real Madrid fans, seemed to behave themselves incredibly well. In a, it's a situation where you know, the French authorities just seem to lose control completely. Ollie, I just want to focus a little bit on the response of you know both UEFA and and the, both the French police and the French government, um, because there was statements last night from the French Interior Minister, also uh, the French Sports Minister, who were both in the control room at the stadium, and, and they put out statements late last night, basically accusing well, say basically, accusing English football supporters of attempting you know, to break into the stadium, attempting ticket fraud, heavily praising the police you know, for restoring order 
to the situation. UEFA as well, they initially blamed the late kickoff on the late arrival of fans. That story then changed post-match to it being down to, um, again, that, that argument of fake tickets blocking the route of those with legitimate tickets. Did you see anyone being stopped by stewards or police on the way to the game, checking tickets, you know, to make sure that when they got to the turnstiles, those tickets were legitimate? And also, did you see anyone at all being turned away with what, what was said to be fake tickets? I didn't hear or, or, or see hear of or see anybody being um, turned away with, what you know, fake tickets. If they're saying that there were thousands of fans with with fake tickets that i mean they have said thousands yeah they said thousands of fans the fake tickets thing to me sounds it sounds bogus it sounds it sounds like people trying to excuse their own behavior and it's 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 all very well saying that but what you know what where's the evidence for it i i don't i'd never heard of anybody bragging about fake tickets or getting in with fake tickets or getting turned away with fake tickets so all I could say is that when I was queuing up at from half six local time again to probably half seven before finally giving up and, and, and trying to get out another way, there was, I mean, it was, it didn't even seem like anybody's tickets were being expect, uh, um, inspected. It just felt like we were all being held. I think the other thing, I mean, I've just spoken to some of my mates that were there and they said there was some issues with QR codes, as in the system not fully functioning mm. which i think is an issue I, I always look at in these situations when in, when institutions and organizations put out these statements what are they saying and why they're saying it you know i think initially if you're being really kind to uefa you could say you know the late arrival of fans is you know it's something that just kind of holds off really everything that's going on it wasn't you know we know now that wasn't true but I can understand in that moment where you're sort of looking for a reason for the match being delayed, why why you kind of say that. It surprises me that two hours after the game, that story changes so dramatically to being it's all it's all about fake tickets. Now they'd have known two hours before if fake tickets were an issue. So why weren't they saying that at that stage? And that and then you start to think why is the French government, the Interior Minister, the Sports Minister in the control room, so keen to pass this book? And and also the police as well. It, it just feels like something you know something we've seen a lot in Britain over the last few years as well. This 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 instinct of something is happening that we didn't expect. Therefore, we need to panic and blame someone else rather than actually just putting our hands up and saying, "Look, we tried to organise it this way. We got it wrong. We'll learn from it." You know, we didn't mean to bottleneck a load of Liverpool fans and intend to cause the, the the damage and delay that we did. But we, we got it wrong. And there is just always this complete reluctance from people in public life to own anything or take any kind of responsibility. And I think what they probably thought, and look, there's going to be an investigation which Liverpool have called for, but my instinct is it feels a bit like they thought, well, if we just blame the fans, they won't have a voice, they won't be able to dispute it. In the end, people will all say, oh, well, it was a bit of this, it was a bit of that and everyone will forget about it. And I think that's probably what, what the French authorities are hoping for. And unfortunately, they're coming up against both a club and a fan base and reporters that are on the ground who are saying this is not what happened. And I think that's, you know, I think that's a really important thing because of these other events that have happened over the past year. Like, this can't, this can't keep happening. And you know, the final point is on France and Paris. France has an Olympic Games in 2024. The sports minister that was putting out these statements last night is also running the Olympic Games and Paralympic Games. And you know, a fan base is a very different for Olympic events. But I think there is probably a sense of Paris needing to show that it's in control and it can stage major events without hitches going off. I think that's part of the show. I think that's also, you know, if you look at what Emmanuel Macron's been like as president, he is always a bit like that, trying to show everything's in control, everything's a bit better than it maybe really is. And I think all those factors have, have kind of accumulated to leave us in the situation where we are today, where unfortunately a fan base that has been smeared for a very long time by an establishment in the UK now feels that it's happening again. Um, and thankfully this time, you know, the, the consequences aren't as severe, but next time we don't know whether that will be the case. 
it's very dangerous. It's almost a little bit elitist as well. I mean, players, families and friends were caught up in this, ex-players as well. Ollie, you mentioned Andy Robertson. Let's just hear what he did after side post-match. Pretty much all of our families were affected, I think. Um, obviously, my tickets were through the club and somehow somebody told one of my mates that um, he's got a fake ticket, which I can assure definitely wasn't because it was, you know, obviously through me. So... Then obviously the French police decide to throw tear gas on on um, fans on families and things like that. So, like it's it's not been well organised. Um, you know you you have to have some sympathy because obviously it's been kind of thrown on Paris kind of last minute with all that's went on and that's all that's all that kind of went on in Russia and stuff. And they had to change the change the venue. But you know as a UEFA competition is the biggest game in world football, it should be um, it should be organised a lot better and delays like that shouldn't be happening and um, definitely the force that was used probably tonight by certain authorities shouldn't be used, uh, shouldn't be happening either. I mean, Adam, that fits in with stuff you've been hearing. It wasn't just Andy Robertson. Other players have come forward and said things as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, Tiago Alcantara's partner, Julia Vigas, wrote on Instagram on Sunday evening and she said... I don't like to comment on these things, but this time I need to express myself. Yesterday's final was a total nightmare, and this is not about football. It goes far beyond the result. Due to a lack of organisation and security, there were so many scary moments. Constantly threatened by bands of robbers that were trying to assault us and slipped onto the stadium without a ticket. For that, many supporters were left out of the game, triggering avalanches of people. Tear gas was thrown by the police at families and supporters and some of them were also beaten down, all of them innocent people. Because of this trouble, we had to leave the stadium escorted for our own safety. Something has to be done. These kind of things cannot happen in any kind of event and we ask for responsibility. It could have been much worse. And you know, and I think it's unusual for us to hear from you know, partners of players after games. They're the ones who are meant to be the most protected, the most in mm. their bubble. And I think it showed the real sense of disorder last night that even those people were exposed to, to really scary things. Yeah, Ollie, if they're not looked after, then quite simply, the average match-going fan, people who've paid thousands of pounds, some of them probably that they haven't got to be there, they're going to be just mm. be treated with utter contempt. Well, I think uh, often when, when British fans and English fans go, go abroad, it particularly, I would say particularly France, particularly Italy, particularly Spain, there have been issues with, with Chelsea, with Man United, with Man City, with Everton, with fans being... Tear, you know, sprayed or with with tear gas or, you know, attacked with truncheons, and it's it's felt like it's been um, police getting their revenge in first. And this is this is a big story, which I feel that we, as a media, sometimes are guilty of not really amplifying because it happens on a big Champions League night and and. Um, and, and you know it happens outside the stadium. Nobody really sees it. Nobody. Th- th- there's not much footage going around, etc. But there, there have been complaints of this nature before in in France, in Italy, in Spain, not in Germany, not in certain other countries. But it, it, it's sometimes it, it, it will be so serious and so um, blatant and so visible. And I think visibility was a, a key thing um, last night. Um, the media are able to tell the full story and can't possibly ignore it. And I think it was it's good that, that this story is being amplified the way it is because it's, what I saw was was complete. It wasn't crowd disorder. It wasn't crowd misbehaviour. It was crowd mismanagement. And that's where all the issues came from, you know, in terms of the reason fans were being sp- sprayed with pepper spray and, and, and locked out of the gr- ground was because... The police had completely mismanaged the situation. It wasn't. It wasn't a fan. A, a situation of the fans making. It was. It was a situation of the authorities making. And it is really different, but it's not the opposite extreme, really, to the completely permissive, overly tolerant approach of the police and stewards at Wembley last summer, which seemed, yeah, it seemed like that. That was really complacent. Nobody was doing anything until until it was until it was too late. So you've got two fairly extreme approaches, and I think one person who who um, I spoke to this afternoon was just saying that you need to have that, that these people who are managing crowds need to be not just following a a, a, a sort of flowchart of what of what we do in this situation, but they just need to be experienced and they need to be able to 
be on top of the situation, control the control the mood and go with the mood um, of the of the fans, which was really positive, really upbeat, really I'd say tolerant, patient, and forgiving of the chaos that they faced until people were tipped over the edge by being locked out and by being spread, you know, sprayed with pepper spray. But I still, I still don't think I've seen anything to suggest that the Liverpool fans' reaction was was. In, in in any way, um, I I haven't seen anything to to justify any one person being pepper sprayed. Never mind thousands of innocent people being pepper sprayed. I think it was it was a disgrace. I suppose to put yourself in the position of those police officers or stewards in that moment, I think those actions must come from a sense of panic and things not going to plan for them on the night. And all of a sudden, you've got this situation where they're unable to deal with the situation that confronts them and therefore they you're kind of left with the instincts of the people who have essentially weapons in their hands and mm. i think authorities going forward have to look at you know are we adequately training these people are these people adequately resourced and also are they empowered in in the heat of a situation to take decisions that can make things more safe because yeah, it seemed. I was just looking at some some of the threads on Twitter where journalists had spoken to police today, and they were saying, you know, the, some of the police were agreeing with them that things had to be moved, and some of the vans had to be moved out of the way. But they were saying, I need to ask my boss, or I mm. need to get the order from the commander, and therefore they weren't empowered to to react to the situation in front of them. Um, and I think that's that's a problem as well that these forces. Are, I mean, they're probably so scared of taking a decision that causes more damage that they don't take a decision at all and that in, that in its own way can be can be equally dangerous um at the same time i mean some of the acts i mean there's i think probably one of the defining images of the night will be the police officer behind who's trying to who's sort of behind the turnstiles you've got a fan showing a ticket not doing anything yeah, yeah. at all a liverpool fan and from the other side of the turnstile this police officer just sprays him with with pepper spray I mean, it's completely it's, it's, it's completely inexplicable. That police officer wasn't under threat. The distance between them, you know, was clear. There was a turnstile between them. It was just aggression. It was aggression, and that police. Mm. Yeah, you would hope that the authorities would be, yeah, looking at what they can do about that police officer because it was a completely outrageous way to behave. But the way the police, the way the police are talking, the way the no. you know Interior Ministry are talking, it sounds like they will. Suggest that, that that course of action was was proportional. Was 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 um, yeah. It feels like, it feels like the police and the the French government are going to double down. Maybe UEFA will double down as well and and say you know maintain this um, questionable claim about for, uh, about fake tickets. I think there is a meeting tomorrow with the French government and mm. UEFA, and I think also there's some parliamentarians in the UK that are looking at you know whether they can raise this with their counterparts in France but I mean again let's see what happens it feels a little bit like one of those things it's over and it may be sort of parked a little bit but but let's see I mean one thing's for certain I don't think Liverpool will let this lie that they'll bat their fans and they'll want to get to the bottom of exactly what happened and make sure it doesn't happen again And, and in conclusion it's too easy to mistreat football fans and it's too easy to blame them as well This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. On the pitch, it was a disappointing night for Liverpool, of course. They were beaten in the Champions League final by Real Madrid. Ole, fine lines, isn't it, for Liverpool? It could have been an exceptional season, and now, in some ways, it's almost underwhelming, but that, that doesn't take away from what a great side this Liverpool side is. To have the season that they've had, and it's been 63 games, and they've, they've only lost four of them, um, which include a, a, a Sort of academic second leg defeat against Inter Milan when they were already two 0 up. There were two two league games before before the turn of the year, and then the Champions League final. And yet they've not won the Premier League. They've not won the Champions League. 
they've won the FA Cup and 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 the League Cup, and they they won those by by small margins in, in in terms of you know the smallest possible margins because it was penalty shootouts, both of which went to sudden death. But I would say equally they lost the other two by incredibly small margins as well. I mean it was to to, to miss out on the league by one point, having ended up with ninety two points. That is unlucky. Maybe not as unlucky as missing out with ninety seven points three seasons earlier. But it's it's um. But then I I, I looked at I, I look at last night's match and I I don't really think there's much where Liverpool can say we didn't do this we didn't do that I, I think there was I thought it was a I thought it was a good performance I thought I, I thought on the balance of play they were the better team it's they just they didn't convert their chances and 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 Real Madrid converted theirs they they were up against the goalkeeper in inspired form and I would say that that was more of a an issue than than the the sort of old narrative of Real Madrid know how to win all of that kind of thing. I, I thought Real Madrid were second best against PSG over the tie. I thought they were distinctly second best in the second leg against Chelsea. I thought they were distinctly second best against Manchester City over two legs, and I thought they were slightly second best against Liverpool um, in the final. And for them to have got through all those shows a real character and a real resolve and spirit and so on but I I wouldn't say that Manchester City bottled it by by losing to them I think it was uh, I think it was um I think that was harsh I think Liverpool losing uh, on on Saturday night was harsh and um yeah I I think Liverpool shouldn't be you know they they're left with regrets because because they've fallen agonizingly short in those two big, big, big competitions that, that were the ones that they really wanted. I have a lot of sympathy for them with the Premier League. I thought they you know, did everything possible to, to do that. I thought last night, first half really good. Second half, I just didn't think they turned up really second half after they went a goal down. And I thought it was interesting. They didn't get in behind Real Madrid really in the whole game. Um, the chances that they made were kind of in front of them, which is obviously fine if you, if you score. I always think Liverpool at their best are kind of they're a mix of being short and direct. They get in behind you. They can get crosses in. They're this sort of brilliant mix of everything. And Madrid defended so deep that, particularly the last sort of half hour or so, it felt like they basically just said, OK, we're just going to let you keep the ball, get it wide, and we're going to trust ourselves to defend every cross. And that's basically what they did. You know, I thought it was two brilliant saves by Courtois. And beyond that, you know, Real Madrid had chances as well. You had... Um, Ceballos obviously go through at the end Casemiro had a chance where he didn't take the shot I, th- I thought Madrid's game plan was fantastic really it was the best I've seen sort of a team manage Liverpool in a big game for quite a long time probably on par with Spurs a few weeks ago I think Ancelotti at times gets under underrated I think people sometimes just think he has a load of famous players and says go out there and enjoy yourselves but he clearly has developed a really great spirit in that group, a desire to fight for each other, which you don't always get with top players. We've seen enough managers go to Real Madrid and completely collapse. You know, you look at Benitez or Lopetegui, I'm sure there's lots of others that um, not off the tip of my tongue. But he just has this way of managing, not just managing the best players, but, but getting more out of them and enabling them to find levels that you don't expect them to hit. I mean, you don't expect Luka Modric, what is he, like 36, 37 now, to play the way he did last night was unbelievable. I thought Valverde, the way that he was deployed, almost as like the legs of the team on the right, was was fantastic. Yeah, Benzema as well. I mean, when they sold when they sold Varane and let Ramos go, and you look at that defence and think it's going to be Militao and, and Alaba and Carvajal, who's sort of been there forever, um, and Mendy, who's still developing, you're thinking, have they got enough defensively? Well, yeah. I mean, they've, they've walked the league, they've won the Champions League, I think it's an unbelievable coaching performance from Ancelotti. And coaching performance doesn't always have to be tactical. Sometimes it's psychological as well. And I think he's clearly the best at that. And I mean, Ollie, I'm just quite interested to know from the substitutions point of view for Liverpool, it feels like Thiago couldn't play the whole game. But I felt watching the last 25 minutes, they just lacked someone in midfield who could pick a pass, who could really just calmly dissect that that defence I don't know what it felt like in the stadium whether those subs really worked for clubs. yeah I, I think I mean Cater has had a, a a good season he's he's been he's been fitter longer he's been more available he's, he's he's contributed well but I think there's 
there's a strong sense of him being Thiago's understudy in that role. It is a downgrade, I think, when 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 it when when Keita comes on for for, for Thiago, and that's not a, a dig at uh, uh, Keita because he's, I mean. I think almost anybody would be a downgrade from Thiago because he's brilliant. But that you know, when when they went to the four up for well the sort of four two three one, and they were left with Fabinho and with Keita, it, it felt a bit pedestrian in some ways. And yet, I I mean I I would disagree with you. I I think they did create chances and openings in the last twenty five minutes. There was a real, I thought I think when Real weren't able to stop the momentum. There was a real momentum. Which, so, so there were like five, ten minute spells where Liverpool just couldn't get going. But within that, within that last half hour or so after the goal, there was a, a wonderful effort from from Salah cutting in from the right. There was there was the one that he hit, which at which Jota almost diverted in. There was the, there was the one where Salah put it. Uh, Pulled it down and and um, went through on Courtois and hit that right foot shot, which was brilliantly saved. There was the one which um, F- uh, Firmino pulled back, which Cater ballooned over the bar with, it, which was a, a brilliant chance. Um, I think Liverpool did create chances, and you know they, they were the better team at nil nil. I thought they were the more dangerous team at at nil one as well. And I just think it's it, look. look you don't always get what you deserve in the, in these finals. Liverpool have sometimes in Champions League finals got a lot more than they deserved. Two thousand five, they played well for about six minutes of that of that of that um, of that final, and and it's you know it's one of the great stories that that they turned it round against a vastly superior team. Manchester United in nineteen ninety nine played terribly for ninety minutes and won it in stoppage time, similar to Real Madrid against Man City in the semi final. I think Real Madrid last night weren't on that level. The, 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 I, I thought it was an adequate performance, but I didn't, I didn't think it was a. I wouldn't agree with you that it was a a brilliant performance or a, or a tactically brilliant performance. I, I thought I thought it was a. I thought there was a, I, I thought they were second best. I really did in the same way that I did in previous rounds. And and I thought, well, you know, Ancelotti's lost the Champions League final to Liverpool when his team was. Distinctly better, and 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 now he's won one where 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 I thought Liverpool were were the better team, but it's uh, yeah that that's often how it goes in the in in cup cup competitions. It's certainly gone that way a lot for Real Madrid this season. Yeah, it's funny how these things come full circle. Sometimes you you mention that that famous three three game, Ancelotti obviously getting his own personal revenge last night. James Pearce has been reporting on the Athletic that Sadio Mane looks set to leave Adam. How did it come to this? This is all we've, we've talked about the breaking up of Liverpool's front three for a number of years now, but the players have always still been there. This feels like it could be the real breaking up of it. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, obviously, you've had Firmino kind of phased out of that starting eleven uh, for the last eighteen months or so with Jota and Diaz coming in. But I mean, Mane is you know, even this season. I think he's been fantastic. I spoke to someone at Liverpool last week, and they they were saying this was before Salah had announced that you know he wanted to do at least one more year with Liverpool that they were more worried about Mane than Salah, about whether he would, you know, wanted to stay at the club. Now, both players' contracts expire at the end of last season, so it puts Liverpool in a position where, you know, you either cash in or you risk losing them for nothing. And I think with Mane, I don't think it's a, like a financial motivation, a payday kind of thing. I think it's just, you know, he's been in the Premier League for quite a long time now with Southampton and Liverpool. He was at Salzburg before. And I think he wants to experience German... It sounds like German football is, you know, something he wants to sample. He's had, you know, Oli will be able to say it far better than me because he went to um, Senegal where Mane's from and, and knows a lot about his background. But he's had the most extraordinary life. And... You know, I don't think any. I don't. You know, I'm sure Liverpool fans will be gutted, but I think there's also a sense of if he wants this to example this other life experience of playing football in a different country, as he gets into his thirties, then okay. You know, he's been an unbelievable player for Liverpool, and I think that the possibility of him leaving is a lot less scary now that you have players like Jota and Diaz already there, and I think probably the trust that fans. I don't know if they do have, but should have. I think in the way that the club go about recruiting players, that they'll probably get it right with Klopp, you know, obviously committed for longer term as well. Like, I don't think it's cut and dry that he will leave because I'm sure 
Klopp and Liverpool may try and persuade him and they can, they can be pretty persuasive at times. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, it very much looks like the players' preference and the players been delaying the these talks until after the Champions League final with the club that he'd like to leave the club. And it, it's a fascinating one because Salah, Mane, Firmino has just been so constant, so terrifying for the last few years. But yeah, I mean... I don't know. I mean, it's hard to imagine this Liverpool team without them. Yeah, also, as a football club, Ollie, you do have to you have to sell players as well. You can't just buy, buy, buy. Yeah. And this is probably yeah. the only chance they're going to get to make any serious kind of money on Manor. Yeah, I mean, you look at you look at Manchester City, and they they, they were able to sort of keep David Silva and and Vincent Kompany and and Sergio Aguero till they were on their their last legs, really. But Yaya Torre as well. But that Liverpool are in a different position in terms of in terms of their their business model their ownership model they do often sell in order to in order to finance what what, what what they're doing I don't think it's really feasible for them to for them to let people's contract run run down and keep until they're 33 34 in, in terms of those star players there's always been this sort of question of, um, because the contracts all expire at once which I think you know for all that we praise Liverpool's sort of squad management and so on that that seems a bit careless to me to have the three great forwards uh, Salamane Firmino all running down the contract at the you know at the same age all sort of coming up to uh, contracts which expire in 2023 they've had the fact they've had you know they're all roughly the same age they've had the best years of those players and to have three three players of that quality playing together so well for like five seasons is it now is extremely rare because you don't normally you don't normally get that longevity in a in a front two never mind a front three but they are in a situation where realistically they can't well either they either they just give both players whatever they want in order to stay or I think they're going to have to sell one of them because it's if you fear you're going to lose one or both of them on on a free transfer in a year's time then this is probably an opportunity to to um, well the only opportunity to get to get some money and you could look at Salah and say well look we'd rather have have him next season and him score another thirty goals or so and then lose lose him on a free or you could say the same with Mane but it, it, it's it's difficult to do it with with both when they've when when um, so I I think Liverpool are in a difficult situation I think if if Mane really really wants to go. I think Liverpool will, act, will will probably just end up accepting that, whether it's now or at the end of his contract. I think I think that you know that the service he's given them is absolutely first class for the last six seasons. He was he was the the first really significant signing of the uh, of of Klopp's tenure, given that the first signing was Stephen Corker on loan. I mean, he he was the one who who really sort of. Signified the the, the resurgence of uh, of Liverpool. He's been incredible, and um, yeah, I, I think supporters would be really sad to to, to um, see him go. But I think he would go with everybody's best wishes. It's also just not that smart, is it, to give you know Salah will be thirty in in June. Mane is already thirty. To give both players three, four, five year contracts. I mean, it's just. I think it would actually be a show of strength from Liverpool to say. Look, we've actually had you for the best part of your mm. career, most likely, and we, and we trust ourselves with the manager we've got, with the squad we've got, the recruitment network we've got, that we can move on, and and you can move on, and we'll both be happy. Fully enough, it, it's a, it's the kind of situation. I mean, the fact that it's, it's Bayern who appear to be the club that uh, they're in for it, 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 it. To me, that would be a sort of Bayern type decision. To me, to to mm. like they did with Alaba, like they did with um, Thiago, like they did with Schweinsteiger, where they they where they thought, well, look, you know, we've had the best years of this player. We're not going to spend an absolute fortune in in giving him a contract till he's thirty five or whatever. Um, sometimes that can be the right decision, but I think Liverpool would want would well Liverpool would would obviously want. At least one of Mane and Salah um, going forward, and if it's if it's if if they are to lose Mane, whether it's in this summer or whether it's a year down the line, I think they have to have 
come to some kind of arrangement with Salah. And if they can't come to some kind of arrangement with Salah, maybe they should be really um, <laughs> trying the damnedest to, to, to keep Mane. I, th- I think it's a really difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think What's, What do you think the... Um Obviously, it's going to be the first summer for Julian Ward as sporting mm. director because Michael Edwards is leaving. So I think there'll be a lot of scrutiny on on him with this. But also, if you're if you're selling Mane this summer, given the age and the contract, what's what's the figure? I think it's really. I mean, when players are in the last year of their contract, you, you would imagine that the, the value comes down like enormously because mm. of the they're obviously um, less than six months. Of, away from being able to sign a pre-contract for the following summer to, to go on a free transfer. But, I mean, I remember being staggered when Robin van Persie, who was probably around the same age, 30, yeah, 31-ish, well, yeah. when he was in the final year of his contract at Manchester United, and he, I think Manchester United ended up, uh, sorry, final year of his contract at Arsenal, Manchester United ended up paying £24 million for him. That was in 2012, wasn't it? Yeah, 2012. So that's, that's 10 years ago. You think about, of, of transfer inflation since then so I, I saw a figure of 30 million pounds mentioned today uh, for money J- just in just in somebody's his report and I thought well that that doesn't what why would you sell for 30 million pounds why would, you you could certainly see the appeal of that for, from Bayern's point of view but I, I think it's I think to me is 30 million pound better than just keeping him for a year and what you get from him well I don't know if it is really I, I, I think you know considering what you do get from from Mane and maybe look you know what 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 they've had in the second half of the season has been as good as anything in the you know as good as any any front player in the in the Premier League um i i think it's yeah i, I think in that situation you could certainly make the case that you'd rather just have an, a year for you know another year out of him if it was if it was only a case of 30 million pounds but it's i i, I find it a difficult one to answer because I don't think Liverpool can really afford to to, to end up losing both both of those guys on free transfers um, in a year's time. I think they they are going to have to work hard to to, to keep at least one of them. Bayern aren't exactly flush either. Bayern aren't flush at the moment. It feels like they wouldn't want if that's where he wants to go. I feel like they wouldn't be able to just drop. Thirty million on someone they could potentially get on a free, but they they are probably going to lose Lewandowski, aren't yeah. they? So I'd imagine that frees up yeah wage space yeah, um, to an extent, and maybe they look at you know the I think Liverpool got Thiago pretty cheap from them relatively mm-hmm. at the time. I just wonder whether relations between the clubs are therefore quite good. Yeah, the goodwill, just from Bayern's point of view, is it, is it better to <laughs> would it be better to wait? A year and get him, get him on a free. I, you know, I, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to say, but I, I think when, when he's already so established and so settled in in terms of what what he brings to Liverpool, it's it's hard to it's hard to say that it would be a good deal for Liverpool to sell him for thirty million pounds. I, I I don't know whether that is just a sort of stab in the dark figure that somebody's come up with, but it's it's um to to me his his value even in the final year of his contract would be. Would be way more than that. Adam, just before we do leave, someone that is leaving Manchester United is Ralph Ranick. He won't be staying at Old Trafford as a consultant despite the previous agreement with the club. Just quickly before we go, your thoughts on that? It's like Man United have this main character syndrome where everything else is going on in the world, yet they still find a way to get themselves in the news um, for sort of strange or weird reasons. Hey, Ron Burgunder. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm really at a, a loss now with Man United because... Ralph Rangnick's quality or the evidence base of what Ralph Rangnick is good at is that he's good at helping to shape cultures within club and help with recruitment and identify talent. So get rid of him just as he's about to do that. Exactly. Um, And, you know, we were told that one of the motivations of hiring him as an interim manager was that he was going to stay on as as a consultant. Now, I think what's not quite clear at this stage is the extent to which you know, Rangnick has concluded that he can't maybe do both the job as the Austrian national team manager and Man United consultant at the same time, or whether United feel that those two jobs yeah. don't really weigh out together, or whether it's a bit of both. I think what is clear, reading between the lines, is that relations between the club and Rangnick have frayed, you know, from the moment that he came in. I think he clearly wasn't, you know, a, a conciliatory presence, you know, within the club, and that was very evident in in press conferences where he was incredibly critical of 
of players. Um, I think he was quite critical of the board a few weeks ago where he said, you know, look, I presented a few options in terms of strikers in January and, and they didn't get one. I thought that was a pretty a pretty bold thing for a, an interim coach to, to be saying. Um, I think there's also been some people at United who have felt listening to him at times it's as though everyone else is to blame for everything that's happened there. And, you know, while it's absolutely the case that there are huge flaws within Manchester United's dressing room, boardroom, um, ex- backroom staff and things, you know, I-, I think it's also fair to have expected that little bit more from Ralph Rangnick as, as the interim coach. I-, I always felt it was a risk that Rangnick's suitability as a consultant would be in some ways decided by how he performed as a head coach which is completely illogical because they're two very different skills but the credibility factor you know if someone comes in and guides you into the Champions League places and the players love him and the fans love him this would be a far harder breakup you know to to manage as it is I think most people are just sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying what the hell was this all about and why why was he brought in and why is he going now and why I mean, even the fact he took that Austria job and it was like announced, it was like the evening of a game against Chelsea. And and okay, by then, Man United weren't really playing for anything, but I just thought it was like, the the whole thing has just been so demoralising, I think, for United supporters over the last few months. And yeah, I I don't think people will necessarily mourn it, but it does also seem like a baffling missed opportunity as well. And someone who may have a decision to make as well is young James Garner, Ollie. He starred for Nottingham Forest and he's helped them back to the Premier League today via the playoffs. He'd probably like a go with Forest in the Premier League, wouldn't he, rather than going back to Manchester United? Oh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he would. He's, he's done brilliantly there. and I mean, every, everybody's done brilliantly under Steve Cooper, but it, but he was one of the ones who was, who was doing well before that. Um, he's, he's, a great, he's a great talent and he's, he's not been close to Manchester United's... Um, First team in you know in a in a serious sustained way yet. I think Forrest's promotion is an incredibly impressive, inspirational one in terms of where, where they were when Steve Cooper took over back in September. Was it? I think they were at the bottom of the table. They've done brilliantly. I think if you were a, a young player, you'd probably want to want to be part of uh, of that again next season. But well. I say that maybe maybe if Eric Ten Hag tells him tells him you know he wants to make him his his new um, Frankie De Jong or his new um, Donny Van der Beek or or, or whatever um, maybe maybe that's pretty hard to resist if, if there's a if there's a, um, yeah, a first team opportunity awaiting at Manchester United but if it's if it's if it would be a case of going back and playing the odd League Cup game or whatever for United, or being you know the odd twenty minutes here or there, I think he's, I think he'd, I think he'd be better off at Forest. And I think um, and just, just just talking more generally about Forest, I think now, yeah, no, no disrespect whatsoever to Huddersfield, but I, I think a lot of people will be um, really enthused by the the thought of Forest returning to the to the Premier League after um, after twenty three years. It's um, it's a really uplifting promotion story. <laughs> that's it then if you're not already subscribed to the athletic and you want to you can subscribe now for just a pound a month to take advantage of that offer head to theathletic.com slash football pod have a great week and thanks for listening the athletic